From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the Catholic Church pays reparations to survivors of clergy sexual abuse in Colorado, that reconciliation leaves some victims out. We'll look at reasons not everyone is included. Then, going undercover to rescue girls who are the victims of sex trafficking in India. But the man who did this isn't a police officer. He's an environmental engineer in Littleton. I just began thinking, what is it that we can do? What is it that I can do personally? There was no way I could not do something. Plus, whether you're sore from a New Year's resolution to get in shape, or you just ran a marathon, how do you recover? A Colorado author has insight on what works and what doesn't. And the first Navajo Poet Laureate on the relationship between English and her native language in her work. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The Catholic Church is paying reparations to some survivors of clergy sexual abuse in Colorado, but those efforts don't cover all victims. CPR's Andrew Kinney shares one victim's story. Pat Wilcox didn't know what to expect when her younger brother asked to move in four years ago. She knew he was having a hard time in Kansas, but he seemed like a different person when he arrived in Greeley in a beat-up truck. He had his clothes in the back, the jeans. I remember they'd been rained on. She had to throw most of his stuff away. We couldn't get the mold off of him. Her brother is in his 50s. His name is Terry Shippers, but to their big family, he's just Suge. It's short for sugar. You know, he was number seven, and Dad said he was his little sugar. Now, Shippers was drinking heavily. His marriage was over. He seemed like a shell of himself. What had happened to the family's golden child? I said, I know how you were raised. I know the people you were around and how you were loved. They were talking after another of Shug's benders. Suddenly, a question struck Pat. It's just not alcoholism. I said, were you sexually abused? And he, he looked at me and he said, as a matter of fact, I was. And then he had a breakdown. That day, Shug Shippers joined scores of Coloradans who've come forward with allegations of abuse by Catholic clergymen. Shippers says he met his abuser, Julian Haas, in middle school. You know, he was a nice guy, you know, funny, you know, liked to be around, you know, young boys. Haas was a friar and a recruiter for a nearby prep school. It was run by a Catholic religious order, the Capuchins. We got to be friends, and uh, uh, that's kind of why I went to Thomas More Prep, is because of him. Haas started to pay special attention to Shippers early in his freshman year. We had night prayer every night at 10 o'clock, and then uh, we would all go to bed. Uh, But he uh, started inviting me over to go swimming with him, and then he would take me to the canteen, and we would get candy afterwards. And um, so it was kind of a, I thought was a treat, you know, to get to stay up later than everybody else and then get to go swimming, and, um, and that's when it, you know, it started. Shippers says the abuse began as fondling and escalated to rape. I was 14 years old and really, you know, sexually really was kind of a, in a loss at that time. At least seven people have come forward in recent years to allege that Haas abused them in the 70s, according to the local district attorney. Shug Shippers says the abuse ended when he confronted the friar after a few months. For decades afterward, he buried it. You know, it wasn't easy. Uh, but I just... Uh, you know, for some reason, just kept it in and and um, tried to, you know, move on with life. 
Graduating high school, Shippers was a star athlete, and later he became the manager of a grain mill. He married his college sweetheart, Jackie Shippers. I mean, he knew everybody. He knew how to make everybody feel happy, feel welcome. It seemed like, you know, he's always very genuine and very full of life. It can take decades for abuse-related problems to surface, according to Anne Hagen-Webb, a psychologist and abuse survivor. There's an awful lot of people who outwardly look very successful, look like things are just fine, and they don't sleep at night, or they are hypervigilant. Substance abuse is common, too. Jackie Shepard says that Suge started to spiral in middle age. The end, it was around in 2014. It was the lost jobs, the arguments with his kids. Drinking and driving. It was the saddest thing you've ever seen in your life. Until Jackie couldn't take it anymore. Your sister will help you. You need to go to Greeley. After she heard about the abuse, Shipper's sister Pat wanted to tell the Capuchins about the allegation. Some family members weren't so sure. It was like taking... The sheep into the wolf's den. But Shippers agreed to make the call. You know, I got mixed emotions. Um, but all in all, I, I thought it needed to be told and... Um, and so I told it. The Capuchin's Mid-America province recently commissioned a review of its files. It found credible allegations involving 13 clergymen. Most had worked at Thomas More Prep, and many made stops in Denver, where the province is headquartered. Representatives visited Shippers, took down his story, and made an offer. Free therapy. He went to eight appointments. You know, just to me, kept bringing up old memories that I'm trying to forget, and I I just really didn't think it was helping much, so I just put a stop to it. Again, that's not unusual for abuse survivors. You're looking at your demons. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Shippers lives today in a tiny studio in Greeley, trying to rebuild his life. For now, his kin are angrier than he is. This priest, I mean, he ruined my family. He, you know, he, he ruined that man. And the Catholic Church, they want to just, Kind of sweep it under the rug, too. But the family doesn't have a lot of options. Like many others, his allegations are probably too old for a lawsuit. Julian Haas has never been charged with a crime. He lives under voluntary house arrest at a Capuchin property in Colorado. The Catholic Church in Colorado has agreed to pay reparations for survivors. But that doesn't include those abused by religious order members or out-of-state allegations. The distinction makes Jackie Shippers furious. How can that be separate? How can that be different? The crime was committed. The act was done. She wants a universal response from the church, one that isn't based on diocese or state boundaries. Meanwhile, the Shippers family is wrestling with what happened. For Pat, it's about anger. When I pray to God, I ask to be a kinder, gentler person because I was surprised at the visceral hate I had towards the individual that had raped my brother. For Jackie... It's what was lost. We would be together. We would be together. And we would be doing our dreams that we had. And for Suge, it's the unanswered question. Why he did it, I guess, is kind of the question I have. I mean, I, I, I think I kind of know now. But, uh, but it's, you know, to do what he did is just wasn't right. It took decades for Suge Shepherds to tell his story. He's still waiting to heal. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. Andrew Kenny reports on public affairs for CPR News. He joins me now. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Avery. How did you come to meet Terry Shippers? Well, we reported a couple of months ago when the state 
AG put out an independent report on the abuse that had happened in Colorado throughout the years. And after we published it, I got an email from Terry saying that he had a story that he wanted to share about abuse that had happened at the hands of a, uh, a priest who now lives in Colorado, as Terry does as well. So that was after the attorney general's report. And there's a big theme in your story that everything the church did to investigate and atone for abuse by clergy in Colorado, a lot of people ended up left out. That's right. And Shug Shippers, his he, his name is Terry, but he goes by Shug, and his family is really pretty upset about this. You have to understand a little bit about his case. He says he was abused at a Kansas boarding school by a Catholic friar. And normally that would mean he's out of luck for the Colorado program. There are no reparations in Kansas. And the abuse happened there, not in Colorado. That's right. So it might kind of make sense that Colorado doesn't extend that offer. The Colorado church doesn't extend that offer. But he's in an unusual situation because his relig- his friar worked for a religious order, the Capuchins. They're based in Denver and they cover multiple states. And even if he had been abused here in Colorado, he still would have been excluded from the Colorado Reparations Program because the church has just not included those religious orders in any way in the reparations program so far. Can you give me a sense for the scope of the issue here? What religious orders operate in Colorado that weren't included in the investigation or in these reparations? There are at least 20 operating in the Denver Archdiocese alone. They generally, a religious order could include uh, a group of monks, a group of nuns, a group of friars, and some of them are quite small and you wouldn't really recognize them. Others are much better known and have lots of contact with kids like the Jesuits did. And the Jesuits also have had their own fair share of, of abuse allegations here in Colorado. Do we have any idea how many people have been or may have been victimized by clergy in these orders? It's hard to say because, as we were mentioning earlier, they were not included in the big statewide authoritative report on abuse. But we do know that for these Capuchins alone, they ran their own kind of self-run look at their own files, and they found 13 credible allegations of abuse, as they put it, from something like 220 priests over 30 or 40 years. So that's a really significant portion. Why weren't religious orders included in that statewide investigation and in the reparations? It kind of breaks down to the way that the Catholic Church itself is divided. So from the outside... You might see the the church and think of it as this big unified body under the Pope, and they've got the Vatican and the archbishops. But they're actually structured in a way that, at least in terms of their response to abuse, it's happening almost district by district, group by group. They're not taking this on at a national or an international level. Instead, it's almost as if uh, they're only taking it on as they face demands in certain states. So... In a handful of states, the attorneys general and others have come to the church leaders in the state and said, we would like you to maybe take on reparations or an investigation. And in each of those states, the church leaders, the archbishops and the bishops have said, okay, we'll do that, but we're only doing it for the diocese or the archdiocese. Those are like the big Catholic districts or organizations. And they've said, we're not taking on the religious orders. And that's because according to them, they don't have direct control over those religious order friars and priests and monks. Colorado is among a growing number of states to investigate child sex abuse by Catholic clergy. In several states, they have similar reparations funds. How does Colorado's compare? 
It's pretty similar. A lot of these reparations funds, I believe in five or so states, are even run by the same officials. They pretty much have the same rules. They all say, archdiocese, diocese, if you were abused by those priests, you're eligible. And they can be quite valuable, actually, to the to the survivors and the victims. In some states, they've paid out north of $50 million in reparations. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Avery. Whether you're feeling sore from a New Year's resolution to get in shape, or you've just run a marathon, or spent the day on the slopes, how do you recover? Cedar Edge author and athlete Christy Ashwanden delves into the good and the bad of recovery methods in her book, Good to Go. It recently was included on NPR's list of favorite books for 2019. Christy's recovery research looks at everything from beer to special pajamas to dunks in ice baths. She joins us now from our bureau in Grand Junction. Hi, Christy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You write that the mega industry that has built up around recovery is turned into a source of stress for many athletes, whether they're pros or weekend warriors. How did this happen? Yeah. Well, I think the answer to that is marketing. Um, I used to be a pretty serious athlete myself. And back then, uh, recovery was really a noun. It was the state of being you hoped to attain by all of the things that you weren't doing. You know, it was like putting your feet up, uh, maybe curling up with a book, but really resting. You know, recovery really was just rest. We didn't do all of these things. But in the interim, recovery has really become a product. It's been something that is marketed to athletes. It's something that people want to buy or services that are being offered. Everything from, uh, I like to call them squeezy pants, these pneumatic compression devices that people put on their limbs and extremities. Um, Cryotherapy, these big tanks with liquid nitrogen that you can stand in and get really cold. Uh, Infrared saunas. Uh, Tom Brady, uh, this somewhat well-known football player, sells these infrared pajamas. So recovery has really gone from being just something as simple as rest to a product and service that people are being marketed at every turn. And we're going to get into those products in a moment. But you're an athlete. You're a high school track champion, a national collegiate cycling champion, and an elite cross-country ski racer. You still do some racing. Did you write this book because you found yourself going down the rabbit hole of overemphasis on recovery? Yeah, well, I think I really got interested in recovery because it was something that as an athlete, I never really managed to master. Um, It's something that's very important for athletic performance, but it's easy to sort of give it short shrift. As an athlete, you think, you know, if I want to be better, I just need to train more. But it turns out that, you know, you really only benefit from the training that you're recovering from, that you're making adaptations to. And so I was really interested in recovery from that aspect. But also, (laughs) I'll be honest, um, you know, like everyone else, I'm getting older every year. And as you get older, recovery becomes more important. And so, you know, I was seeing all of these products being marketed and I thought, you know, does any of this stuff work? Because if it does, maybe I want to try it. And you did try out a bunch of them. Okay. You mentioned squeezy pants. And this is actually one of your favorite products, I think. (laughs) It is. I love the squeezy pants. What are they? Uh, Oh, my gosh. They sort of look like sleeping bags. You stick your your legs in them and then you, you flip a switch. They sort of have a So there's a motor that they're attached to that will inflate the bags and it sort of like pumps and squeezes your muscles and it feels really good. It's like basically like a mechanized uh, massage. And look, massage feels really great. Um, In fact, as I was doing the research for the book, one of the things that I found is that uh, massage was probably one of the number one most favored recovery methods among athletes. And, you know, something that I used to do when I was a cyclist, we would have a masseuse sometimes that would travel with our team and 
It feels really good. And so these squeezy pants, pneumatic compression boots, uh, Normatech is one of the most popular brands. Uh, yeah, they're, they're just a very expensive way to get that massage in, and it feels great. Okay. And you didn't just try dozens and dozens <laughs> of recovery projects. You actually read hundreds of research papers, and you conducted 250 interviews. Did you find much consensus among scientists on what works and what doesn't? So what I found is that there are hundreds, literally hundreds, probably even thousands of different products and things that are being marketed for this stuff. But when you look at the scientific evidence, most of this stuff, if it works at all, the be- the benefits are very minimal, very small. At the same time, I did find that there was one thing that really came out up ahead of everything else. And in fact, you could add up the benefits of every other recovery method out there, and it still would not surpass the benefits of something really simple, which is sleep. Um, I have a whole chapter in the book about sleep, and for good reason. It's the most powerful, most potent recovery method known to science. And in the same vein of just sort of common sense things like sleeping, what about food? Is there a magic recovery food for everyday athletes, say chocolate milk, or I've heard peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, or even cherry juice? Right. So there are a lot of particular foods and products that are being marketed as the secret to recovery, you know, whether it's cherry juice or chocolate milk. And it turns out that, you know, when you finish exercising your body, you've burned some energy, you do need to replenish that. It doesn't need to be right away. And there's not one particular thing that's going to be magical compared to something else. What's really important here is that you're eating a balanced diet, that you're getting those carbohydrates and that protein in, you know, re- replenishing that stuff. But there isn't a single problem product that's going to give you a particular edge. There's a lot of marketing, though, around it. And chocolate milk's an interesting one because when you look at the components of it, it has a lot of the things that an athlete needs after a workout. Um, So it's a perfectly fine recovery beverage, but there's nothing magical about it. If you don't like milk or you're lactose intolerant, no need to do it. There are plenty of other things that you can do. And so, you know, the, the idea that there's one magical thing that if you just do this, everything will be great. I think we really need to get away from that. And one of the things that I discovered while researching the book is that there's this idea that's being marketed to athletes that there's sort of this optimal version of yourself that's out there waiting and you just need one weird trick or one special product to get there. But it turns out that really the way to get to peak performance and all this is to just master the fundamentals and the basics, sleep, overall nutrition, you know, actual rest. And, you know, all this other stuff is just garbage. <laughs> but the hard work is really the exercise and the training and then the recovery. That's is right. maybe not as magical as we think. Correct. Um, No, I think you've already hinted toward the answer, but you have a whole chapter about beer. Yeah. Is beer a good recovery drink? You know, it's not a terrible one. Um, It's got water, which is, you know, very hydrating. It's got a a few electrolytes and and all of that. Um, But it's not not going to necessarily be performance enhancing. I have a whole chapter looking at this in part because, um, you know, I did a study to to look at this. Uh, My question was, does drinking beer after a hard workout, um, you know, does that impair your recovery? And the answer was that it probably doesn't as long as you're doing it in moderation. And I think one of the takeaways here is that we start to sort of fixate on things as though they're going to be the answer. When in fact, you know, if it if it helps you after a hard workout um, to go and enjoy a frosty, you know, beer with friends, that can be really beneficial, just that relaxing, uh, kicking back and all of that. You don't want to get drunk. You know, the, the trick here is to stop at one. And you've mentioned this, the market surrounding recovery a few times, and some professional athletes have put their names on recovery products, and that's proven to be a powerful selling point. Tell oh. us about 
New England Patriots quarterbacks, Tom Brady's pajamas. Oh, yeah. Tom Brady uh, is marketing a lot of things for recovery, a lot of um, things that, you know, when I, I went and looked at the science, really didn't pan out. Um, he has these $200 pajamas, which I tried out. I've tried them multiple nights, I'll just say. Um, but the trick here, or this, the big sell is that they are infrared. So they have this special powder that is um, embedded in the fabric that is supposed to reflect infrared radiation. Um, well, if you remember from high school physics, infrared is just a kind of heat. So basically what it's saying is that these are pajamas that will keep you warm. And you know, if being warm helps you sleep better, that's fine. You probably don't need the $200 pajamas to do that, though. (laughs) But it does point toward this industry that surrounds recovery products. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it really illustrates the extent to which, you know, Tom Brady's right that sleep is extremely important. It is the secret to recovery, but you don't need to turn it into a product. Now, another thing that we talk about a lot in sports is icing. Um, What does the research show us about whether or not icing is helpful? Oh, yeah, this is fascinating. Um, You know, I grew up sort of icing. When I was a bike racer, we used to fill bathtubs with ice. And during a stage race, we'd get into these ice baths. And it was really painful. But we knew it was working because it was so painful. You know, you really knew that it was helping. And we thought that it was going. Right. It was going to make us less sore and all this. Well, it turns out that icing is actually the exact opposite of what you want to do. So it is true that icing can reduce inflammation. And that's one of the big cells. The problem is that inflammation is your body's healing process. And so So what you're actually doing is impairing recovery. And there's some pretty good research on this now. Uh, Some clever studies, one that I'm thinking of is they took uh, athletes and they had them do a hard workout and then they would ice just one limb, so like one leg and not the other. And what they found is that the limb that got iced actually had poorer recovery than the other one. That is fascinating. And so much research and so much trying of products going into this. Um, I wonder, do you think more athletes that they'll maybe sleep more after they read your book since that's kind of your main takeaway? Yeah, I sure hope so. And yeah, I do have a whole chapter in the book about sleep. And um, yeah, the thing about sleep is that it's simple and yet it can be really difficult to get it right. And in the book, I talk about some of the strategies that elite athletes and elite teams are using, particularly as an athlete or even, you know, someone who's traveling a lot for work. It can be very challenging to get good sleep when you're crossing time zones or you're traveling. And so I discuss this in the book and different strategies that you can use um, with, you know, adjusting your your body clock, wake cycles, etc. And I'll just say that naps have really become a hot trend among pro athletes. I will take any extra reasons to take naps. <laughs> Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Christy Ashwanden is the author of Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. She joined us from our studio in downtown Grand Junction. When Colorado Matters continues, how an environmental engineer from Littleton ended up rescuing girls from sex trafficking in India. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. CPR News wants to help voters set the agenda in this election year. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. Over the next several weeks, CPR reporters and editors are talking to people around the state about what you think is important, what you want the candidates to talk about, and what issues you need more information on in order to cast your votes next year. Go to the Colorado Public Radio Facebook page to find a meetup near you. Or take our survey at CPR.org Colorado 2020. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Now a story about going undercover. 
to fight sex trafficking in India. But the man who did this isn't a police officer or a detective. He's an environmental engineer from Littleton. John Spencer now heads a Colorado-based nonprofit that runs a safe house to help girls who have been trafficked. I asked him how he found himself undercover in India. I had been over to India several times before. I started going over in 2005, and I found myself back in 2012. I had connected up with a person here in Colorado who was peripherally involved with an organization in India that was actually rescuing girls from the sex trade. And uh, they asked me to be part of their organization, so I wanted to go over and see what that was all about. So in 2013, I did go over uh, to see what they were doing. And one of the things that we did, we went to one of the dance bars, which was in Mumbai. And a dance bar is just like it sounds. It's a place where people gather for music. It's really loud, a lot of flashing lights. But you sit at a table, uh, order a drink, and then after a while, they have these women or girls come out on a stage and they each have a number around them. And you just order a girl the same way that you might order a drink or food. And it was a real eye-opener to me. I, I had heard about that, but to actually go there with the undercover team and be part of that is just something that is really hard to describe. And in this moment, you're posing as somebody who would buy a, a woman Correct. or a girl. Correct. And so the idea there was that the undercover team goes into those places They'll will um, buy a girl. You could either rent a girl for the evening or buy a girl, in which case you could take her away. And how old are these people that are being sold? The girls that we saw were anywhere from eight to eighteen years old up on the stage. So really, they're children involved. They're children, and uh, so we were there basically gathering evidence with them. They will bid on a girl. They'll take the girl in the back and then they will interview her to see, does she want to get out uh, and try and gather evidence so that they can come back and actually prosecute the traffickers. And tell me about the situation. You bid on a girl. What happened for you? So we bid on a girl. We ended up the next night, we arranged to actually purchase the girl. So we agreed to meet the trafficker at another location, which happened to be a McDonald's restaurant in Mumbai. So we went in with the team to the McDonald's restaurant. I sat at a separate table and the undercover team then negotiated with the trafficker. And as soon as the money changed hands, then the police came in and arrested the trafficker. And so I actually was able to snap a picture of the girl with the trafficker. And I keep that on my desk just as a reminder. Uh, This particular girl was 12 years old and she was being sold for the first time. So she had not actually been in the sex trade herself, but she was about to enter that world or so she thought. And in her situation, did she know her trafficker? It was her older sister that was selling her. Mm. And is that typical that it might be a family member? It could be a family member, especially I had an opportunity to go with another nonprofit into one of the slum areas outside of Mumbai, which is one of the largest uh, slum areas in all of Asia. And the poverty there is just hard to describe. Many times the traffickers will go into those slums. They will approach a parent and they'll say, listen, we can get your daughter a job as a domestic housekeeper. 
away from the city. We could give her an education. She could be sending money back to you. And these parents are so desperate for opportunities for their children that they just willingly give them up for a small payment, 25 or $30 in some cases. So sometimes these people don't even know what they're getting their children into. Uh, in some cases. In this particular case, the sister did know. But of the girls that we have at our home, I'd say about half were sold or somehow got into sex trafficking and prostitution by either their parents or their grandparents. Do you know what happened to the girl at the McDonald's? Uh, she was turned over to the Child Welfare Committee, which is the governmental organization in India that's responsible for the welfare of minors. And then she went into their system, and I don't know what happened to her specifically. Now, from this incident, you wanted to do something on a larger scale. Tell me a little bit about that. As you might imagine, you can't see something like that and not be moved. I had had the opportunity to take my daughter to India several years prior And she was 12 years old at the time. And so your thoughts just go to the fact that she could have been one of these girls up on the stage, except for the fact that she happened to be born here in Colorado. I just began thinking, what is it that we can do? What is it that I can do personally? And so I began to look at the resources that I did have and the connections that I had. I'd been to India several times before And I'd been involved with another charitable organization there in India. So we had quite a few contacts. And one thing led to another. And that's how the work at New Horizons House started. And what is New Horizons House? So New Horizons House is a nonprofit that I founded in 2013. And it was established to provide holistic restoration in a residential setting for young women who were rescued from the sex trade. So... In our case, those are girls age 10 to 16 that come out of brothels or dance bars or similar situations. Some of the girls that we have have amazing stories. There was a, There's a 14-year-old girl that we have now that for the last several years, she had been taken to Dubai every summer and trafficked all summer to construction workers. She had several forced abortions at that point. And so... A lot of the girls have similar stories. Here's one of the girls in her own words. 16-year-old Alicia describes a trafficker giving her drugs. She forgot where she was and was taken to a room with 10 men. Through a translator, she said, all their cruelty used me that night. The trafficker beat her until she remained silent and cut her hands. And when she tried to run away, they tried to kill her. She was later rescued by police and taken to New Horizons' house. Our goal was to help these girls not only recover physically and mentally, but also to provide them with a way to make a living. One of the things that we saw initially was that these girls were rescued through other partner organizations, but then there was no place for them to go. And so many of the girls would end up right back on the streets again because they had no skills and no other opportunities to make a living. So we wanted to change that. A number of studies, a number of reports have come out showing that India is the most dangerous place in the world to be a girl or a woman. And it's also the epicenter of human trafficking, which is something that surprised me when I learned it. And so I felt like this is where we really needed to focus our efforts. There are some support services in the United States. There's very few similar services provided for girls in India. And how many girls are you able to help through New Horizons? 
So we currently have 30 girls at the facilities. We opened our home in October of 2018. So we've been running just about 13 months and we have 30 girls, which is our current capacity. As of next week, we'll have an increased capacity up to 45 girls. We just added uh, three additional rooms and we'll be adding additional staff. And the land that we purchased ultimately will have capacity for 200 girls, which will be one of the largest facilities in India. And what is life like there? It's in a rural setting about a mile and a half from the Indian Ocean. And we've got about three acres, but it's basically set in a grove of mango trees. It's a two-story, state-of-the-art facility. We basically have four elements to our program. We have medical care, trauma counseling, educational services, and vocational training. So these girls will spend their days learning skills, getting help that they need both physically and emotionally, and then developing skills to be able to live independently in the future. Are there still concerns for physical safety even after they've gotten out of the sexual slavery? Yeah, that's a great question. So the organizations that are involved with the actual rescue, that's a very dangerous operation, as you might imagine. The group that we work with has been shot. They've been stabbed by some of the owners of the brothels. We purposely set our facility uh, hours away from the nearest large city because it makes it tremendously more difficult for the traffickers to come out and find the girls. But even that said, we have a high security fence. We have armed guards at the facility, and we have video cameras, all types of security things, again, mostly based on recommendations from from other facilities that we've spoken with and visited. Now, I want to back up a little bit. How did you come to be in India to be doing this work at all? Yeah, so in 2005, I was headed to Nepal with some friends to go climbing in the Himalayas. And the church I was attending at the time up in Lakewood had had this ongoing work that I had referenced earlier. They had started that work in the 1970s, which included things like an orphanage, a lot of educational training and vocational training. And no one had been over there in several years. So the leadership had asked, as long as I was in the area, would I mind stopping by and checking out the work in India? So I did go climbing in Nepal and uh, for about three weeks, and then I headed down to India. And that's when I first became acquainted with, with the work there. So you really got involved with this work through outdoor recreation. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then I wonder if there are any stories from New Horizons that you want to share. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about our first girl that we got. Our first girl came to us just a little over a year ago. Uh, She had very few skills. She was age 16 at the time, and she had been sold in a brothel for several years. Fast forward a year, and because of her time at New Horizons, she's been able to acquire both computer skills, educational skills, and about six months ago, she had indicated to us that she wanted to become a police officer, which is not common for women in India to become a police officer. So she's an incredible young lady and very determined. So she wrote the local police commissioner along with some letters from our staff. And they went back and forth several times, but she was finally accepted into the program. And she'll actually be leaving next week for her first training seminar with the police academy there. And her goal is she'd like to help rescue other girls to come back and either go to places like New Horizons or similar facilities across India. 
but she's also become an incredible mentor to the younger girls that are at the facility. That's incredible. John, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. Thanks for having me. John Spencer is an environmental engineer in Littleton and the founder of New Horizons House, the nonprofit rescues girls from sex trafficking in India. Two languages come together in our next guest's poetry, English and Navajo. We'll let her introduce herself in her native tongue, also called Diné. She'll say her name, then her parents' and grandparents' clans. In 2013, Lucy Tapahanso became the Navajo Nation's first poet laureate. Well, she was in Denver the other day for a reading, and we just had to meet her. Lucy, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. You were born in Shiprock, New Mexico, in the Navajo Nation. Now you live in Santa Fe. Specific places, specific mountains are vital in your poetry. Tell me about why poems with a sense of place are important to you. We are taught that we are earth surface people and we're watched over by our father, the sky, and then we are supported by Nasan, our mother, the earth, and we exist between the two, so we're always cared for and we are always looked after. I love that, the sense of sort of cradling. Yes, I think as a Navajo person, place is really important, and we, we're we very attached to our sacred mountains, and the Navajo Nation is, the boundaries of it are within four sacred mountains. So it's natural then as a poet that that would be reflected in the work. Now, Diné is your first language. You learned English in a boarding school in the 1960s, where you actually weren't allowed to speak your native language. You publish poems that are a mix of English and Diné. Tell me about the relationship between those languages in your poetry. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting and um, not really something that I often give much thought to. But because I learned Diné first, I think the way that I see the world and that people who have language other than English as their first language, you kind of, you know, everything you do, the way that you see the world, and just the way that you live is filtered through the uh, sensibilities and worldview and language. And then when I learned English, it gave me another lens with which to see the world. You actually conceive of your poems in Navajo first, is that right? Yes, I'm always sort of thinking in Navajo. And hearing my parents' voices or my relatives' voices. And then writing things down. And, you know, I grew up in a time when we couldn't speak Navajo. So I didn't associate Navajo with being written. There was a big emphasis at the school I went to on penmanship. I began to associate physically writing the sound of pencil on paper with reading and then with writing a poem. So so even as I'm writing, whatever I'm going to write is 
conceived of in Navajo. I really like the flexibility of the two languages. Now, you've chosen a poem to read for us. What is this one called? This is a poem, one of the first poems I wrote, and I wrote it in Leslie Silco's class, and it's called Hills Brothers Coffee. Hills Brothers Coffee. My uncle is a small man in Navajo. We call him Shita'ayaj, my mother's brother. He doesn't know English, but his name in the white way is Tom Jim. He lives about a mile or so down the road from our house. One morning, he sat in the kitchen drinking coffee. I just came over, he said. The store is where I'm going to. He tells me about how my mother seems to be gone every time he comes over. Maybe she sees me coming, then runs and jumps in her car and speeds away, he says, smiling. We both laugh just to think of my mother jumping in her car and speeding. I pour him more coffee, and he spoons in sugar and cream until it looks almost like a chocolate shake. Then he sees the coffee can. Oh, that's that coffee with a man in a dress, like a church man. Oh, that's the one that does it for me. Very good coffee. We sit down again, and he tells me, Some coffee has no kick, but this one is the one. It does it good for me. I pour us both a cup, and while we wait for my mother, his eyes crinkle with a smile, and he says, Yes, ah, yes, this is the very one, putting in more sugar and cream. So I usually buy Hills Brothers coffee, once or sometimes twice a day. I drink a hot coffee, and it sure does it for me. I love that poem. It's so it's so subtly funny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like you said, you wrote that poem in college in a class Leslie Mormon Silco taught. She's a Laguna Pueblo poet, and she was your first Native professor. That class actually changed the course of your career, right? It really did. Before that, I was in journalism. On a whim, I took her class in poetry writing. Seeing her in that position made me realize the possibilities. And then the fact that she and the class really connected to my poetry was also just a big boost for my writing and the way that, just the way that I was writing, I realized that the way that we talk as Navajos, an ordinary conversation really has its own poetic cadence. And it's really poetic in its own way, just because we're kind of thinking through two languages and it's very unique and can be really beautiful. And then also really funny, too, because we're naturally just like always liking stories. You know, we laugh and 
recount different things that people did. So putting all those together, I think, just made uh, the poetry have a unique flavor that didn't exist before. And you went on to earn your master's in creative writing, but there was a moment in your university studies when you were discouraged studying Old English in particular. What got you through it? So I was having a really hard time, and I was afraid I would fail my classes. And, you know, I was on scholarship, so I had to keep my grades up. And I remember talking to my mother about it. And, you know, my parents didn't really have an understanding of what I was studying or anything like that, but they knew that I was distressed. So they put together an all-night ceremony for me, and I went back to Shiprock and you know, I had to stay up all night because that's just the way the ceremony is set up. So I was sitting by the medicine man and repeating everything that he was saying in Navajo. And early in the morning, um, of course, I was really sleepy, but I was repeating the words after him, and I was had my eyes closed on this. I was repeating it. I began to th- realize that the prayer that he was saying had stanzas, and things were repeated. And I kind of saw them in my mind's eye. I could see where the lines would break. It was such a breakthrough when I realized that our traditions, our prayers and ceremonies and songs and stories had that really wonderful, complex, very intricate form that had come from thousands of years ago. And the difference was that our literary traditions are memorized. They're not written down. And Western form is written down. So once I realized that, I was able to appreciate Western literature and various forms of poetry And then, you know, was really drawn to um, writing sonnets and villanelles and sestinas. And and it's really nice because, again, I have the two languages to work with. You were the Navajo Nation's first poet laureate. And that's a position that you held from 2013 to 2015. How do you see that position preserving and shaping Navajo culture? It was very much an honor. And I think that... The position and the creation of it very much honors the oral literary tradition that I I just mentioned. You know, it it really is an acknowledgement of our past, of our ancestors, how that shaped us and how it strengthens us. And that even though our, you know, a lot of the writing now, creative work is in Navajo and English, it still has its own unique place, and it's really wonderful for the future of Navajo literature because that kind of melding of traditions and history, language and culture and education has evolved to a point that wouldn't have been possible if we weren't able to gain a Western education. So. Now, you know, educated Navajos are able to use what they learn 
but with a Navajo lens on it. Lucy, thank you so much for talking with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me to be a part of this program. Lucy Tapahanso is the Navajo Nation's first poet laureate. She retired as an English professor from the University of New Mexico and recently visited Denver for poetry with the American Indian College Fund, which is based here. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. My co-host is Ryan Warner. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. Our producers, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon. Our audio engineers are Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Shane Rumsey, Patrice Mondragon, Luis Higa, and Natasha Watts. Our fellow is Claire Cleveland. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. We're so glad to have you here. Thanks again for joining us.